Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. So just right before we start and roll the intro song, I just have a question to ask. Why is it so hard to find Gustavo Kirten's matches online? I mean, I'm willing to pay for that. Why is it so hard to find those things? He's a three-time Grand Slam champion and year-end number one in 2000, man. Come on. Okay, now we can roll the intro song. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to Tennis and Bagels, the podcast about everything tennis. And this is your host, Andre. And today I am going to talk about a player that is very special to me. I'm a big fan and... Uh, well, I guess you could say that I'm a big fan because I'm Brazilian as well, because, uh, well, this guy is uh, one of the greatest players uh, of the open era, and uh, he's a three-time Grand Slam champion, and he does really fit well with the current situation and the current uh, weeks, because at this point we were supposed to be um, watching Roland Garros, but because of the whole crisis and the quarantine and lockdown measures... Um, you figure it out, we're, we're still not having tennis, we're still not having professional tennis, players can not really just travel from place to place, and we don't have crowds, so there's no Roland Garros. Most people are doing um, rel relieving matches and stuff, but I want to relive one certain person, and his name is, as you heard in the pre-intro rant, Gustavo Kirten, and uh, he is a former world number one in 2000 and 2001, he stayed there for 43 weeks and uh, three times Roland Garros champion. Um, and just just to start a little bit with uh, some context, like who who is Gustavo Kirten? He Well, obviously, you know, he was a tennis player. He was a professional tennis player. And um, he is from Brazil, uh, my, well, my home country. That's where I was born. That's where I lived for the first 16 years of my life before I moved to Montreal. Um, and uh, but he's from a city that is a little bit farther away from me. Is uh, he's from Fro Florianopolis, and you know Brazil doesn't necessarily have like the best tennis players in the world. Like right now, we kind of have like some good doubles players and whatnot. And uh, I've mentioned in my podcast about the history of Wimbledon. Uh, a woman named uh, Maria Maria Bueno. She was a three-time Wimbledon champion and four-time U.S. Open champion. But um, Kirten has something just a little special about him that. Um, it's not that easy to explain. He just kind of like is essentially when everybody is describing him, just say like how how Kirten was just so nice and so relaxed on court, and he was just very smiling uh, all the time. And yeah, I guess that's 
his personality is a big part of why essentially he he was so um great and how he's so remembered and um why he, he ended up being so important in the in tennis history and in Roland Garros. And he actually does have some very, pretty impressive records uh, in his uh, rather short career. Uh, he retired officially in 2008, um, but he hasn't really been playing that much for the past two seasons. So his actual career really kind of spanned from 1995 to 2004, which is 10 years, but he wasn't really relevant um, until 1997 from 2002, 2003. So that's kind of like um, his span was short because of uh, injuries that he had suffered in, in his hip and I believe his elbow as well, which is which is a little sad. Maybe he could have achieved more if uh, if it wasn't for that, but... Just to start off, um, I mentioned how he was in world number one and three times major champion. He won Roland Garros in 1997, 2000, and 2001. The last one that he won, he was actually uh, seeded world number one. And um, yeah, it was pretty pretty impressive. Like all of his runs at Roland Garros were all really, really interesting and full of drama. And for uh, quite some time, he was actually kind of like known as the, the king of clay, right? So he came uh, after past kings of clay came in, so, such as uh, Thomas Muster, and there was also Sergi Bruguera, who won uh, the Roland Garros title twice. And Kirtan had won, I believe, all of the Masters titles that you could win on clay, at the time being Monte Carlo, Rome, and Hamburg. And he won, obviously, the Roland Garros title, but he also won the Cincinnati Masters 1000 in, uh, in well, I don't remember exactly when, I believe it was 2000 or 2001. Well, I can't really recall, but it was one of those in, in the span of the years that he was uh, playing his best tennis. He was also the only man to beat Agassi and Sampras in the same tournament. Uh, he beat them back to back in the semifinals and the finals at the Masters Cup in 2000, and that this entire tournament essentially defined a lot of his career because um, at that time he was running uh, the rankings race against, I believe, Marat Safin, and uh, he needed to win the tournament to finish as the world number one. Otherwise, Safin would become the the number one. And he did so, and he had to overcome the massive task of beating Sampras and Agassi. Uh, and obviously, they were ob uh, not at the prime of their careers. I believe especially Sampras was kind of uh, seeing the, 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 the steady decline, and he was not necessarily the best player of the world, but he was still beat Sampras. He still won at that year in 2000 the Wimbledon Championships, and uh, he went on to win the U.S. Open title in 2002. So he, he was still a pretty big player. And also Andre Agassi has been very important in the 2000s as well. And he won the Roland Garros title in 1999. And he won a couple more of Grand Slams in the 2000s as well. So he he wasn't just like a pushover. Obviously, like it, just by seeing who was the, the, the tournament, the Masters Cup was a... It's the year-end tournament, like now we call them um, World Tour Finals, the ATP Finals. And uh, it's only the best eight players in the world that qualify. So being Sampras and Agassi in the top eight players of the world world is 
is um, kind of proof enough that it was still not a not an easy task, you know. So um, there's a few there's a lot of things to unpack about Guga, and uh, besides the fact that there's a a lack of um, full matches and I believe not that many highlights online. Even though if, if if you dig, you can find a few things here and there. A lot of them have terrible quality because it was the 90s and um, I think it's just mostly people who ended up recording on their VHS um, tapes uh, at home for, for matches that they watched of him and they just kind of ended up uploading them to YouTube. Uh, which is I'm grateful for. Uh, I'm thankful for those people who did that because that's the only way that you can watch. But yeah, I was trying to watch a Thomas Muster, um, Gustavo Kirsten match. It was the round three of Roland Garros 1997. Went up to five sets. It was a really interesting match. The quality of the video was really tough uh, to you know watch. It was it made it really hard to to watch it because at some points I could just barely see the ball. Like uh, I caught glimpses of like the, the the trace on the screen because the pixels kind of like moved a little bit and changed the color but it was overall very tough but I, I could get a big sense of uh of of Gustavo Kirsten playing especially at that tournament um uh it, it was his first title ever if I'm not mistaken it was uh, the Grand Slam was a Roland Garros that was his third attempt at uh I want to say at eight Grand Slam championship like he took only three times uh it was only so he played two Grand Slams prior to winning his first Grand Slams I believe that's the case if not he played Roland Garros three times and on the third time he won it but I really was happy to watch that match because in the match and uh, watch a few more highlights and whatnot even though they were very short clips of like maybe five minutes but I really enjoyed watching him and seeing his playing style. And it, there, there was obviously like some differences between how tennis is today from how um, tennis used to be in the 90s. And um, although uh, a lot of um, things remain, obviously, it's, 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 it hasn't changed all that much. But uh, it was interesting to see just kind of like the players and... Every time, like, you were on court, um, well, not you were on court, but, like, you looked at the draw and you would see so many big, big names, you know? Um, I feel like it's interesting nowadays when you look at the uh, big three and you just kind of, like, um, I believe ever since Federer came up in Nadal in 2005, we just kind of have been overlooking a lot of players and they're just remaining the shadows of uh, of those three players just because they've been so dominant. Uh but um, especially in the uh, 90s and early 2000s, there were so many great, great players. They were fantastic, fantastically good. And I don't think that players are bad. Um, I don't think they were bad, like in, in the first band, like maybe 2005 to 2013. I, I just think that it's just the Nadal, Federer and Djokovic were just so good that made other players uncomfortable and they just kind of like walked in defeated most of the time but there are some interesting records but that, that's a, a talk for another episode like how uh was it really a weak era the 2000s and i don't honestly don't think so and i think guga is a guga is a really great example of that and by the way i'm going to be referring to him um interchangeably as 
Guga or Kirtan. It's Kirtan is his last name, and Guga is his, uh, how he's known in Brazil and in a lot of places of the world. It's kind of like his his nickname. Um, his playing styles is is interesting to see because as a clay court quarter, you know that he. Well, you can guess that he was a baseliner. He has a really powerful ground strokes and um, he moves well. Well, he used to move well. Um, and uh, he had lots of topspin and he had a lot of patience and he used to build his points really well. But I think it's very interesting to see like um, so many clay court specialists, they really stay very, very far back on the court and they'd like to return really far away. Now, that was a good example of that. Um, although he really does mix it up a bit. But um, Guga had something a little bit different to him, is that he was always, almost always attacking. Like, he was not necessarily... Um, he always, like, was dictating point from the get-go. And his serve is uh, not very talked about, even though, like, when he... The first thing that I noticed when I started watching his matches is kind of like, wow, he lit he really hates a lot of aces, and he really sets up the point really well with his, uh, with his serve. It's like a really big serve. Um, he's not... He doesn't have... That was never a weakness in his game. I actually couldn't really find much of a weakness in, in his game, per se, because his forehand was incredibly solid. Has a lot of... Uh, had a lot of spin. He could hit it hard. He could hit it with the angles, and he could set up the points really well. Uh, he's... Um, Inside-out forehand was particularly fantastic, in my opinion. Like, you could reach incredible angles with that. And uh, his um, his backhand, there's absolutely no no question about it being one of the best backhands, uh, I guess, ever, maybe on, on clay, at least. And it was a, it, it's, fun, it's interesting to see, because as a king of clay, um, even though it's in the 90s, a little older, like nowadays, most people play with a single-handed backhand. We're seeing like a little bit of a, a renaissance of the one-handed with uh, Dominic Team and uh, what's his what's his name? Oh my gosh, uh, Titipas. And um, but Gustavo Kirten had a had a backhand that was a uh, one-handed, and it was not vulnerable. It was just not a weakness. It was, in fact, probably his his, his strongest wing, even though obviously he would run around his forehand and probably would prefer that shot in terms of like how comfortable and how um, harder he could hit it. But his backhand down the line was phenomenal. Like I would watch the match and the highlights and there's always backhand down the line winners. He take the ball so early and he hit it with so much power. And you cannot... I, I just keep, keep imagining how... Um, how he would uh, play against Nadal if they had a chance to play against uh, each other in their primes um, because um, he would take that ball really early and just place it really deep on court and uh, it's, it's I don't know, it was, it was just really fantastic how he managed to control that shot. I couldn't see, I couldn't really see the Nadal topspin really bothering him all that much Obviously, it would be a tougher shot to play because Nadal's spin uh, makes the ball jump also really fast and really high, and it's kind of hard to control. But I think Guga would have a chance of uh, using that spin in his favor to like maybe uh, bring in some angles. And um, and also, if he got used to the bounce, he probably would have been able to um, um, handle that a little bit better and really fire into uh, his, his backhand 
on the down the line. So that would have been really interesting. If we could have had a chance to see that, it would have been an interesting match to experience. Unfortunately, it's just kind of like um, assuming and uh, speculating what would happen because that would obviously never happen. So the closest thing that I can think about Curtin is is Dominic team um, in the sense that like he, he has really powerful strokes, really um, intense playing style. But I think uh, Gustavo Curtin is kind of like a little bit of a Dominic team mixes up with uh, Roger Federer, except like he's obviously pushing a little bit more towards team. But Curtin never really failed as well in the touch, and uh, the, his touch was always intense. If you watch the Thomas Muster match as well, and other, all other matches as well, like you're going to see that he, he has a really decent drop shot, and he just knows what to do when he's inside the court. Like when he isn't in the attack pos attacking position, he's not just kind of, what am I doing here? Like he goes to the net often, and he wins lots of points at the net. And um, and that's the virtue of like him being patient and setting up the point well, and just kind of like when he sees an opportunity, he just goes for it, and uh, um, that probably helped him a lot, like in in winning his first 1997 uh, title. Um, another thing that is quite um, particular of Guga's Guga's game is the fact that he plays. He just looks like so relaxed, and he's super. He's a, he was a skinny, like a skinny dude, right? He, he doesn't look very like athletic, and he's just kind of like a tall and skinny, like a long arms and whatnot. Just kind of like his his backhand and forehand kind of like look like the rack is like too big for his hands and whatnot. But he had so much more, so much power. Uh, he just seemed seemed so relaxed on court that. You just really couldn't tell like what, what shot he was going to play. You would, we couldn't really tell if he was going to hit hard or if he was going to hit with topspin. He was going to hit on the backhand with um, a drop shot or a slice, which he didn't really use that much. Or he was going to hit like the, the topspin backhand. So, yeah, I, I, it's just uh, surprising to me, I guess, that he couldn't really just adapt very very well to other surfaces. Although I did mention that he, he did win some good, good titles on hard courts as well. Um, but it, it seems to me like Guga could have made a pretty big um, grass uh, grass court player. Like I feel like he, he would have had the chance if he adopted a little bit more of the uh, servant volley style because his volleys were good, his serve was good. There was really no reason why he wouldn't do it. But maybe his ground strokes over there a little too... Um, too long i guess like his motion was too long and he had probably hit with like way too much spin so maybe the court uh, the clay court bounce and slower conditions helped him set up his shots better um which is probably one of the reasons if you maybe if you got a chance to see any interviews or ask him personally whether that was the reason maybe you'd see it but like i think he could have he could have made like a really good um um grass court player so yeah, that's it. And uh, Roland Garros 1997, since I've... Uh, that's kind of like one of the things that I really wanted to talk about in this podcast. For for one, because it's uh, it's Roland Garros week, uh, even though we're not having Roland Garros, it's just kind of like remembering what could have been without crisis and lockdowns. But 1997 was as well the year, the Roland Garros tournament where Guga was born, like... It was a very important tournament in his career. Well, just not just the fact that it was a Grand Slam that he won and it, it being his first title, but 
because he was also ranked number 66, he was not really having a good season at that time. He's... Um, he was just not supposed to win that tournament, honestly. Like, if you look at the draw and who he beat and who was there, um, although a lot of players, uh, the top players, really um, did go out early in the tournament, some of them actually came in, uh, they went down because of Guga. So, um, it's just... 1997 is legendary it's it's not a normal thing that would happen it's kind of like the only com uh, fair comparison would be to um goran ivanisevic who won uh wimbledon in 2001 although ivanisevic had already been a top player so he's not like he would been completely um out of the game it's it's just kind of winning a tournament that big without actually that much experience and that much uh renown it's it's pretty impressive to look at that achievement alone. And the fact that he came back and won twice uh, really just shows that not only that he grew into his game, but he also had the confidence to believe that that wasn't just a lucky two weeks. He achieved it. He achieved more. He The Grand Slam just opened up all of the doors to his career to like flourish and become who he, had, who he ended up becoming. Um, uh, nine, the 90s is a very intense um, decade. Um, sometimes we can think of uh, players, when I think of them, I would imagine that it's they're mostly important in, in, in one decade only, right? Um, even though Federer and Dal and Djokovic are kind of like pushing the limits of that. But it, you think of them like if you were good in the, in the 80s, uh, by the end of the 90s, you're kind of like in the twilight of your career, right? But those guys that he was facing they were not necessarily old and they weren't playing badly like they were still incredibly dangerous so um the the i think Roland Garros really shows why um the 90s were very interesting i'm just going to pull out the list of uh of winners here cuz i think it's it's really interesting to see like the 90s who won like in from 1990 to 1999 the winners were I think Alex Gomez, uh, I have to check his, his full name, Andres Gomez from Ecuador in 1990. Then Jim Courier won it back-to-back -back in 1991-1992. Jim Courier was a former world number one, very good player. Then uh, Sergi Bruguera from Spain, 1993-1994, whom Guga actually beat in the final of 1997. And then Thomas Muster came and won in 1995. Evgeny Kafelnikov won in 1996, then Google won in 1997, and Moya in 1998, Agassi in 1999. So lots of winners and, and just one, that one decade. A couple two-time winners, but big names. Uh, Thomas Muster was an incredible player. He won so many big titles in, in his life. Uh, he was super dominant on clay. It was, um, he won most of his titles on clay at some seasons he essentially swept all of the slams i believe his best season um was 1996 in terms of number of titles won um although he did not win a grand slam in that time he actually in fact only won Roland Garros once and that was the only grand slam he's ever he's ever won but he he was a fantastic player and um one of the reasons why it's important to look at those guys is because Guga actually defeated three of, of them in, in that one tournament. He beat Muster, Kafelnikov, 
and uh, Sergei Bruguera in that same tournament. He beat Muster Medvedev and Kafelnikov. Medvedev being, uh, uh, I think, a former world number four. Um, he never won a Grand Slam, although he reached the final twice. Uh, one in the Australian Open and the other one in uh, um, Roland Garros. Wimbledon, I want to say. Well, anyways, I think he, I think he reached the Roland Garros final. No, actually, never mind. He only, I think he only reached the final in the Australian Open. But that's it. Uh, he did beat Med, uh, Muster Medvedev and Kafanikov in, in three, um, in three five-set thrillers. And the big win against Muster is the one that I watched to completion. It was an interesting match to see because it just didn't seem like Google was playing his ranking. He was. Um, he was dominating play. He he didn't. He never really seemed like to be the the guy who was going to be beaten. Although there is a, he did face a really really hard time in the fifth set, and he actually ended up becoming, um, uh, kind of like known as a marathon man in uh, Roland Garros. He won a a, a bunch of uh, uh five setters, and in a, a few of those, he was actually down in uh in some of the sets so he was not really exactly doing perfectly well uh i have in front of me there is a they, they made an article about guga on Roland Garros, which i'm gonna leave in the description of this podcast and on my uh facebook page and on my instagram which you can follow at tennis and bagels and just tennis and bagels on facebook you can find me really easily so that that, that comes like um Here's exactly how it said, as it says in the in the article, Kirtan, the comeback king. The toughest part of playing Guga was finishing finish him off. As the players below can attest to, Thomas Muster, the match that I've been talking to in 19, the third round in 1997, he was a point away from a three-love lead in the fifth set, which, by the way, has an interesting story that, that I want to talk to you about later. Uh, Andrei Medvedev, he, he bit like the... The fourth round of 1997, so right after Muster, uh, Medvedev, Medvedev left 2-1 with a break in the fifth set, and then was up love 40, or maybe 40 love, on Guga's, on Guga's serve at 4-all. So he had everything to 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 beat him. And then Kafalnikov, the defending champion uh, from 1996, he led by two sets to one and 4-2 in the first set. So Guga went off, he almost... I almost didn't even, even make a, a fifth set in that one. And then Juan Carlos Ferrell, now in... Uh, oh, actually, that, the, the one that I mentioned was in 2000. Uh, that he almost lost to Kafanikov. But um, he also beat Kafanikov in the, in the quarterfinals at, uh, in 1997. And then also in 2000, in the semifinals, right after beating Kafanikov, he um, came down from... Two sets to one and three one in the fourth set. That's the the hole that Guga was in, and uh, you can see some of the highlights uh, of those matches. Ferrer was playing really, really well and pushing Guga really in the back of the court. He was kind of playing an attacking game that was somewhat similar to Guga's, and he was defending incredibly well too. Uh, Michael Russell, like probably one of the most iconic matches the. Kirtan played. Uh, Russell led by two sets to love, 5-3 in the third, and held a match point on his serve. That itself, like when, when I watched the highlights for this and I watched that point, it still gave me the goosebumps. Like goosebumps. I, feel, I still feel like Guga is going to miss that. Because uh, at that match point, he hit a forehand um, not so well. It was a very windy day. And uh, Kirtan hit, hit a forehand down the line. Um, not necessarily an attacking shot, but the ball landed on the line. It landed on the on the baseline. That is kind of 
when I when I watch that, like my heart just kind of like um, goes up, my heart rate goes up a bit because I'm like, it could go out, but it didn't. Even though it's a video and I know he won that match and he went off to win the tournament, it still feels impressive. Um, then he did he beat um, David Saginetti in the second round of 2002, and he led by two sets to one, and he was two love up. And the fourth round with uh, Love 40 on return. And he also beat Nicolas Almagro in the first round of 2004. Uh, he served, and Almagro served for, a set, for the set, uh, for the match at 5 4 in the fifth set. So, also 2004 is the year that, um, 2002 and 2004 is already kind of like the years where Guga was not really playing at his best. And um, he is suffering with the, the hip injuries and. It was essentially it for it. Like it's it's a sad, um, it was a sad ending of his career, and that's why I really kind of like don't, I don't want to touch too much on that. I don't want to really talk about his injuries uh, as much as I want to talk about how great he was for the sport. And in two thousand and four, um, one of the things that he did was, um, I really like uh, looking at that stat because he beat Roger Federer in the fourth round of a Grand Slam, and that was. The first time that Roger lost in the first round of a Grand Slam, in the first round, um, in the first week of a Grand Slam, until I believe 2012 or 13. So, Federer, that was the only loss that Federer got um, in the first week of a Grand Slam in in a long time, and that was also the only loss at a Grand Slam that that Roger suffered, and. in that year, in 2004, from 2004 and 2000, 2004, I believe five, no, 2004, six, 2006 and 2007, Federer uh, won three Grand Slams. So, yeah, uh, maybe if Guga didn't defeat him at that in that round, maybe he would have wanted to win his first uh, Roland Garros title and could have possibly have comp- completed the Grand Slam year right then. Like, I feel like Federer was that dominant, but just Guga just really showed a lot of resilience and also a lot of why he he was a great champion on clay and uh in uh, his interviews that he gave on in the article that I'm going to leave in the description he he was talking about how um he faced off Roger Federer and he was already not at his best and he was kind of like thinking thinking in the in the in this in the lines of um well, you're you're big. You're the guy right now. You're the one to beat. But this is my home. This is like my my turf or like my dirt in that sense. So it's cool to see how he just kind of like finessed Federer and and won that match because Federer is never really a great, 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 great clay court player. Although he is very decent. He if it was if you weren't for Nadal, maybe he would have had like maybe five Roland Garros titles as well. But he he did get a a clinic by 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 Guga. He got served entirely in that in that match. And straight set six four six four six four. It really doesn't show that. It really shows that Curtin. It wasn't just luck. He he didn't really just kind of like push through. He he really just dominated in that match uh, when it really mattered. Um, Another cool fact I find for for Gustavo Kirtin and um, his um, story, especially with Kafelnikov, is that he Guga beat uh, Kafelnikov in all of his uh, title runs at Roland Garros, 
in the quarterfinals. At the same stage, he beat Kafelnikov in the quarterfinals. Uh, two of them were uh, five-set matches. Um, the first one in 1997 and the second one in 2000, where he had to come down from a very poor position. And in the last one in 2001, he won in four sets. And Kafanikov was the one that actually uh, gave uh, Guga like a, a less known nickname, like the 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 Picasso of clay or whatever, the like the tennis Picasso or something like this, because. To be honest, like some some sort of shots that Guga played, and he also plays different than Nadal, and that's kind of like why I associate him with Federer as well, because Nadal is a very, he does hit like paintings of a shot in a sense. He, Nadal has incredible shots to his CV. Uh, you can find out pretty much all of them online, um, but Nadal is more known as a as a power player. He is very physical. He runs and his his shots is seem to require a lot of effort to make. And the fact that he does that day in, day out, and it's it's a feat in itself. And um, his arms are really big. Another is a big guy. So Guga wasn't like that. He was just kind of like relaxed and just kind of like more flow motion, just like kind of like in a sense like Roger Federer, but a bit less um, perfect. Guga was more like a relaxed type of thing. It's kind of like um, like the cool guy. He like walks and has a lot of swag and just kind of like hits the ball very, very relaxed and doesn't really seem to be getting tired of doing this. Doesn't really seem to be a, an effort uh, heavy shot that he hits um, either wing or anything. Uh, but he still just like paints the line and hits incredible um, passing shots and volleys and uh, forehands down the line, forehand angles. Um, really, there there was nothing really lacking on his game. It's fantastic to watch, and I I found a, a bit more more links online of uh, matches on YouTube that I am going to watch even after this. I really wanted to have watched all of them uh, before doing this, so I could kind of like commenting comment a little bit on those matches. But it would have been uh, this podcast would have been like six hours long if I were to comment on every single match that he played. That was fantastic, which were many. Um, and as as I mentioned, um, Guga also beat uh, Bru- Bruguera. I think it's Bruguera, not Br- Bruguera. I don't know exactly how to pronounce him. He was uh, from Spain, um, and he beat him in the final of nineteen ninety seven. And uh, I guess it, it would have been more likely that he would have to be pushed in that particular match in the final but he actually entered that the, the match almost as the favorite um i guess he's obviously the underdog because it's a first time grand slam finalist he played a couple five set matches were really uh grueling physical um uh so kind of like a he, he spent a lot of time on the court so Probably Bruguera was a, a favorite because of his experience and because of his uh, uh, his run to the final as well. Um, even though he was like number 16 seed, he was already a two-time Grand Slam champion. So, And on Roland Garros, so that's very important. But Guga actually beat him very comprehensively in uh, in three straight sets. And I believe the scoreline was 6-3, 6-4, So... Very impressive feat by him, just kind of like he, he just never seemed intimidated by 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 who was at the other side of the net. He always kind of like played to his best and played in his head and kind of like tried to get himself in the zone. And he ended up 
taking the title and yeah that's that's honestly like one of um the matches that i actually want to want to watch because when you watch some of uh, the interviews and whatnot um i watched the one that was in portuguese uh which was really cool to to watch because it means that they actually speaking perfectly what they think and what they want to say so uh, it's nice to be able to understand him in that on that level so um he was saying like how that match was essentially perfect he he played that match um and if he looks at it back back, back um like in hindsight if he looks at it nowadays you would see it and it would, and you just probably and he he saw it that there was essentially no technical errors from his part he he was so in the zone he was so confident in himself that um essentially there wasn't there was no stopping him at that point like and that's one of the things that he said like um after he beat i believe medvedev or kafonikov one of the two and when once he he finished those matches he was like now i i feel like nobody can stop me like this is this is mine for the taking and i'm going to contrast this now with the uh his expectations coming into this tournament as i mentioned uh he didn't really have a great um career at that point he was just kind of like ranked number 66 he didn't really win much and he wasn't necessarily in the picture uh, but what ended up happening was that he was running totally out of confidence uh that's by his words like his confidence evaporated as he was saying um and he was traveling around the world and just couldn't really get anything going he was he would play a good game here and then lose the other one really badly so he, he just couldn't really have the fun of the playing anymore and that is in 1997 so he went back home in Florianopolis and that's kind of like a big part of his his personality and his game too because he's very attached to Brazil very attached to Florianopolis and um that actually helped him um regroup and recharge his batteries as per the words of his brother his older brother um because he he ended up coming back home and he played a challenger played a couple of tough matches in the challenger and won the challenger and then decided to go to paris and i don't remember where i read that where i read that interview uh, where he said i was confident in roland garros but i just kind of like wanted to get my feet wet right uh, i just wanted to um try to make a couple get a couple wins and see how it goes and see how i feel and he was expecting no more than like a third round showing probably because his third round showing was against Thomas Muster um and he his confidence just rose it it, it was just kind of like a magical it's kind of like got that that champion thing in and that that was born in him it was not necessarily a confidence to win but the confidence to know that he can win any match which is very very important to 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 people because to players rather because um you see so many times like a player just kind of like comes in and causes an upset like uh, you can remember a few from uh, Federer and Nadal and they just kind of prepare for that match and they have that match and they kind of like go in if i win this match this is my my career but um and not not to say that it's it's bad to think in in that way in a lot of in a lot of senses because sometimes you just know who you are and who they are and what you're capable of um and it's it's good to respect players but um guga just had that kind of like a the clicking thing in his in the in his uh, mind that allowed him to push 
and to push himself to the next level and know that he is capable of and believe that he's capable of winning and playing great shots again against the greatest players on uh, on the planet and that really showed against muster um first set was not a uh was not like a walk in the park at all it was a 7-6 victory uh 7-6 win um in the in the favor of uh thomas muster in the first set um but Guga really played incredibly well. It was really tight, and then Guga proceeded to do to have a six-one-six-three uh, in the following sets. So he dominated those two sets, and things got a little bit more complicated. And um, yeah, this really just goes to show how his confidence rose to the occasion. And in terms of that confidence, there was one thing that I I saw that kind of like puzzled me a little bit in the. Uh, documentary that they made um, in, for Roland Garros. I think it's in the Roland Garros uh, YouTube channel. So uh, it's it's named O Guga. O means, uh, it, it means in Portuguese, the Guga, right? So um, that's kind of like how people refer to him because in Brazil, um, in several regions of the, the country, you use uh, the, uh, um, the, 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 the article to, is that, is that how you say it? But anyway, um, to refer to like before names, so like uh, my name is Andre, I'll be the Andre, right? So that's kind of a thing that happens back there. Um, but anyways, that, that's just to give you a little bit of like linguistics uh, information. But back to the match. Um, in the final set, as I mentioned, Guga was almost down to three to three love down, right? To Muster, and that would have essentially meant would have meant that he would probably go on to lose the match. He was already a uh, a breakdown he could have been double breakdown and apparently as he, he says his I, I don't know if his brother said that or he, he said it but like his brother shouted from the from the the stands probably his, well his player box which is near the court hey like hey what you doing and they were playing at Suzanne Langlan it was a, a smaller court uh than uh, Philippe Chantrier um, like what are you doing? Uh, you're you're in Paris. You're here to you're here to win. Like have some confidence. Like put yourself together. You came all this way. You cannot just like give up now. And uh, uh, the the thing about it is that I don't know much of uh, officiating. Like I I did take uh, an officiating class at uh, Tennis Quebec, which is the officiating govern uh, governing body in Quebec. It doesn't govern govern the. Uh, uh, Masters 1000 tournament in Montreal, but is involved in everything else. So, uh, and they they do formations for judge line, uh, lines judge and uh, umpire and uh, coaches as well. So I I do know about the rules and I do know about the the the, the blurred lines and where the, the gray areas and that for me is a gray area. That help that uh, his brother gave him is for me what I would consider a great area in terms of the rule of coaching because if I'm not mistaken I'm just kind of paraphrasing I might be missing something but like coaching is essentially anything that makes uh that can make a player go from uh from A to B so if you can change the the player's behavior on court it's considered coaching so if you if you're just kind of like cheering just kind of like come on or like uh you can do this kind of like just shouts like this like let's go it's uh celebrating it's kind of like pumping up. It doesn't necessarily. It's not considered coaching because if if you were, people would just kind of be, be robots on on court. Maybe coaches wouldn't even be allowed to be on court, which would be ridiculous. But that it's kind of like a blurred line. I feel like it could be considered depending on the 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 entire empire. 
it could be considered coaching. And although this is this wouldn't necessarily have uh, changed the outcome of the match after all, it could have changed something in the in the because it's just like an it, it just get a warning. You don't you don't lose a point. You don't get disqualified unless you get a number of those. So, but it could have changed how Guga received that. So. And the reason why I think this is important to mention is because, well, Guga spoke in Portuguese to his family, which is obvious. I speak in Portuguese to my family. Um, the umpires, they're required to speak only the languages, uh, at least say, um, the scoreline in France. I, I don't know everywhere else, but uh, in France, they say a lot of the stuff in French. And you can see by their accents that most of them just kind of like probably know <clears throat> that basics that they need to know to give people and the stands the orders to be like, hey, please, uh, please silence, uh, please sit down, and ready play, 30, 40, and stuff like that. But he couldn't have possibly understood what his brother was, was telling him. So he probably made a, he, he could have made a judgment call in the sense like, oh, he's probably just pumping him up and whatnot. But like, if he could have understood what he was saying, I think that there's a chance that he could have labeled that as coaching. Um, and especially because Guga wasn't, wasn't known at, at that point. He wasn't a, a French Open uh, lovely. He wasn't the... Uh, uh, people didn't necessarily like know Curtin at all at that time. Um, so it would have been easier to give him an award, give him an warning, a warning rather. Um, if it was, for example, if could if you were if you were for Thomas, maybe not for Thomas Muster because I heard that he wasn't necessarily that liked. But um, if you were for for Nadal or Federer to get a, a warning, it would have been tougher. So or a Frenchman. So because they would go berserk on the stands and they would just be screaming loudly, and it would have been a tough decision. But for Guga, I think it would have been an easy an easy take to be like, oh yeah, that's coaching, just kind of like move on. So. Interesting piece of uh, piece of tennis uh, knowledge, I guess. Like uh, that, that remains the the question, the doubt. But in the end of the day, the call that was made was the right one, except for when the ball is out, when and we know it was out. But um, that, that that judgment call ended up being the the one that gave him the uh, the boost. Uh, well, not the boost, but like kind of like open left the door open for, for him to just kind of like receive those words of encouragement and change the outcome, outcome of the match and just beat Muster in that in the final. And one of the reasons why I kind of like am talking much about this final, I just kind of like uh, came to me a bit, um, is that I really feel like that match defined a lot in Guga's mentality coming into the next matches that he played. That series of three matches is definitely like undoubtedly the ones that made him who he is. Um, and drove him to win the tournament at the end of the, the 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 two weeks, but he beat he came he came up against Thomas Muster. Muster, as I mentioned, he was a solid clay player. He was the winner on clay. Some players were actually kind of critic uh, critical of him because he won most of his stuff on clay, and some people called his uh, his. Um, his rankings are artificial because of that, but he did he did have some success on on hardcourt as well. So, but in any case, um, I think winning against such a such a powerful player, such a such a name as Thomas Musters, um, really gave him the boost to think, hey, I can do this. And 
coming back from from uh, that set because he's not like Muster was like playing he was worse he didn't have the greatest season let's let's put it out there he was he wasn't having the greatest season of all on 1997 but he was still Thomas Muster he would still kind of um, steamroll over players that just kind of like ha- let him have his let him have it have his way and during that coaching part it came coaching rather like during that encouragement um, part one of the reasons why he kind of like received that is because he was showing and shouting maybe in Portuguese as well how he was thinking what am I even doing here like I just want to go home like just just get me out of this court this is this is horrible I, I hate this so yeah and that's why I feel like it's coaching because it changed his mindset very like from from A to B real quick so um yeah I feel like this match is, is incredible for his career and I think it's one that should be remembered um the video that i saw was so sad because it was on espn and i believe they were having issues with uh at rolling arrows so like from the the broadcast was not necessarily um well it was good broadcasting obviously but sometimes they have technical problems and by by three love in the fourth set where for thomas muster um he won that six three um they they just had a, had an issue and the transmission was not coming through the broadcast was not coming um over to ESPN and apparently they had problems in the Roland Garros end so i lost the uh the final final parts of the fourth set and until the beginning until like it was like 3 all in the or 3-2 i believe in the in the fifth set so i just kind of like lost all of that i couldn't really watch it which is a little sad to me but yeah that's a uh, that's a thing that happened, <laughs> and yeah, like and for the other Roland Garros titles, obviously they were very important. The nineteen nineteen seven one, I think, I won't say it's the most important, but it's the most iconic because um, because of all the players that he beat and the, his ranking and then his story coming to the tournament. But there was just another match that I just kind of like wanted to touch on before I start wrapping up this podcast is how. He played against a qualifier in 2001. 2001? Yeah, uh, let me just double check that, but I'm pretty sure it was 2001. Yeah, so he played the fourth, the fourth round against Michael Russell in 2001. Michael Russell being the American qualifier, who, as per his own words, he was coming onto the court believing... Well, let me just... I'm just I just want to do my best to like not just go get out of here. Six love, six love, six love. And... That boggles my mind a bit, like just kind of like uh, a parenthesis in how Guga was viewed as a steamroller. He was a big player, man. Like sometimes it's hard for me to believe in that, uh, being from Brazil and looking at players nowadays and just kind of like, man, Guga, Gustavo Kirtin was was feared <laughs> by by players. He, he, he wasn't nobody. Well, he was number one, so it, it makes sense, but... Some number ones, you just kind of like get a feeling that players are less scared of than others. But Kirtan was feared, and even more so on clay. So that really, that really makes me feel really happy about him and about um, yeah, because this is my idol, my idol, right? Um, so um, Michael Russell led by two sides to love, as I said, in five three in the third, and held a match point on point on serve, as I uh, said early on. And uh, when Kirtan finished that match, 
uh, when he won, he finally put out, I put away the final um, uh, smash, which, by the way, that match point is incredible because Michael Russell's defense is just insane. He just he just really could just run around the court very very quickly. He slid really well. It, it was really surprising to me that he didn't um, become much better than that um, in in his career because he was a fantastic mover. He's a fantastic player. Maybe he if he had won that match, things would have turned out differently for him. But he also said he's really happy about um, having this this piece of history. And what a piece of history! Because at the end of the match, as I was saying. Um, uh, Gustavo Kirten just um, shake, shook hands with uh, Russell. I don't think he shook hands with the, the Empire uh, before he did this. But he went back on, on the court and uh, he picked up his racket and he drew a heart on on the Roland Garros court, on Philip Chautrey court. And that just kind of is one of the most iconic moments in his career as a tennis player and in terms of his love for the Roland Garros crowd, for the French crowd. And people love him there. And skipping now all of the issues with his his career prior to that, let's. I just really want to remember him for his his awesomeness as a, as a world number one and his achievements. Because if you're looking, if you start looking too much as like when he did poorly and he started winning less titles and whatnot, it kind of seems to for me to take away from how powerful and how complete his his uh his playing style was and him as a player uh, he was so just jumping over back to the now back to the um fast forward to his um um final match which he played at Roland Garros he requested a wild card to play his final match at Roland Garros he played on Philippe Chartrier in the first round against Paul-Henri Mathieu from France and he was obviously granted that. Like, Roland Garros loves him. Like, he loves Roland Garros. It's, it's a love story from from start to finish. So um, he was obviously granted that. And he played his final match. He kind of like almost like an exhibition style. And the crowd loved being there. And Paul Himatio kind of also really liked being there as well. He uh, explained how... He really didn't really feel like he was going to lose that. And explainably, Guga was not really moving quite as well as he used to. He hadn't had that much uh, match experience, match match fitness at that time. He was kind of like just going down slowly but surely. He was ranked outside of the 1000s in the world. Um, and so, yeah, there was just essentially no, no way that Mathieu would have lost that. But he... He did really make sure that that match wasn't just going to be really boring and terrible for people to watch. And he wasn't really just going to kind of like walking that fine line between like letting the guy have some fun and having some fun with him and kind of have the moment be about him and not about about Guga and not about Mathieu. Um, but also doing his job as a tennis player and winning the match. So, um, but Guga, as always... Just smiling from uh, from year to year, just pleasing the crowd and the crowd behind him and behind Matir as well. It was just it was just a good time. That was, that match was just a good time. And I remember to this day, like um, watching. Uh, I I think I watched the second and third uh, set only, and his last his last shot ever on a professional court was um, uh, a backhand slice, a backhand drop shot that hit the net, and that was it. That's that's how Gustavo Kirchner's career ended. And 
what an end like i mean it wasn't an end like pete sampras's uh win in the u.s open um his, his grand slam title run um but it was an end in the sense that it was like a closing chapter it, it wasn't uh an achievement chapter it was it was literally a farewell it was it was it was just good to be here and it was nice to see you once more and now i'm moving on to another thing so without no pretension of believing that he could do it um kind of a little bit like uh like andre agassi's final match um maybe andre agassi was um more fit than he than guga was when play, when he played his final match um but yeah and uh really they they honored him um in the perfect way in the best way possible in the first round um there's actually a quote that i want to read um from uh christopher christopher clary on the new york times he says not many first round losers receive a prize but then not many players burst into the light by winning their first grand slam title when they are ranked 66th in the world and then make the precipitous climb to the top so what happens is that he he received a cross section uh, he he received a trophy which was the cross section of a of a clay court and i believe from the courts at Roland Garros and man that's meaningful uh, i think um there's a there's a photo of him there which is not loading for me right now but it's it's just him like in tears like raising his trophy and it's not it's not a trophy of like i win uh, a tournament of an accomplishment it's like a trophy of this is this is a beacon this is a symbol of our relationship together Roland Garros and uh, and me um, uh, it's kind of like I will always love you and I will always look at this and remember it and I remember you and I remember the moments that I've been on the court and honestly it's it was it was an amazing sight uh, I really loved it. Like um, when I was doing my research and I was looking at all this, I definitely felt um, a little bit tearful. Like I felt like I wanted to cry a bit, but like of happiness and a little bit of sadness because he couldn't do uh, more. But from what his career was and what he accomplished, the things that he did, how how nice he was to everyone. Roger Federer, um, in a, in an interview that he did with him recently for. Um, a fundraiser that Guga was um, putting up to um, to make a relief fund for families in Brazil who are struggling during the lockdown period um, during the coronavirus crisis. Roger Federer said, "If if Guga calls, I'm always there. I'm always there to him for him." And he said, "You probably don't remember this." Federer saying to Guga in the interview, "But you were always really nice to me, and that really like struck a chord on me and like really made a difference in my in my in my." in the beginning of my career, of my professional career. And he said, you probably don't remember this because you were just nice to everyone. And it's it's just so true. I I could be talking about Guga, the person, and forever, and not even mention his tennis, but just mention how great of a person he, he, he is, how nice he is. And um, there's lots more that I left out, and I've, I'm already reaching the one-hour mark here. So um yeah if uh maybe dreaming really high here but if i could one day make a an interview with him if i could ever meet him one day like that that would probably be my dream dream come true and i'm a big fan of novak Djokovic, but i think all time i am a bigger fan of gustavo kirtan 
And uh, I would put that in my top priority list. If I could meet one player, past or present, that would be Guga. If I could never meet another player again, I would still pick Guga other than I wouldn't pick Federer, I wouldn't pick Djokovic, Nadal. I would definitely pick Guga because he's so he's just so influential for for me and for my uh for my goals like when I think of, my, of myself like trying to um make a a career in in tennis not necessarily a um a player well obviously not a player but even when I was a kid like I, I kind of like wanted to I, I wanted to be like him even though funny story I didn't actually know that he had a, a one-handed backhand because I didn't watch him that 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 much growing up I just knew about him because um he was uh he was a big sensation uh I think I don't remember who said that Guga mentioned in uh, in uh, in one interview that uh, a football player said in Brazil there's um soccer Ayrton Senna who's a Formula One driver who died in 1994 uh fantastic um fantastic pilot I think that's what they call it, like a pilot Formula One pilot um racer and and Gustavo Kirten so like those three um sports uh pillars in brazil and there's just no way to not know him and yeah i really liked when people like would talk to me and say oh yeah you're you really look like guga because of my hair and how skinny i am and whatnot and that kind of like really makes me happy but i didn't actually find out that he had a one-handed backhand until i was way too old um to change my ways uh, otherwise i would um But I was really surprised by that. And I don't know why I was surprised, because it's probably just growing up, just kind of like everybody learns a two-handed. And when you come and see a person that hits uh, one-handed, it's kind of like, whoa, I never I never thought about it. But like, I guess in the 90s, it was way more common than it is nowadays. But yeah, uh, as I said, I can go on forever, but I don't have forever. And I don't want to be here forever either, because... Um, Well, we all have a life to live outside of uh, recording sessions. And um, I guess thanks for listening. And uh, if you listen to this and you know Guga, let me know because I really want to talk to him. And um, um, yeah, I just, yeah, just as a final message, uh, as a final message, I would like to uh, just call people to remember um Remember him for for his his good times. Oh, he's not dead, by the way. He's he's very much alive. As I said, like I want to meet him, but um, kind of like forget about like the 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 hip problems and just kind of uh, appreciate uh, people's and, and players' careers uh, when they were at their best and uh, and just have fun and just kind of like being being nice and lovely to everyone you meet. It's a, it's a really good lesson that you can take and just also have confidence in, in yourself. Like, I feel like this is all uh, lessons that you can take from Gustavo Kirchner's career. And that's it for my time. And um, yeah, thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>